Father, give us open and humble hearts that we might receive your word to us and may it do good in us. May it change our attitudes and our words and our thoughts and our deeds. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about God's judgment. Being confronted with something that we have done and being judged for it is one of the most difficult things to bear. And we struggle to recognise people's judgments upon us as valid. And we struggle to get ourselves off the hook somehow. You perhaps know this. Think of a time when you've been sprung, caught, found out and done the wrong thing and you know it but you feel just so awful and having to admit to yourself and to others that this is the case is hard. We want to say, I I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Or we want to say, I didn't mean to do it. Or we want to say, I was tricked into doing it by someone else. Or I couldn't help it. I had no choice. Or I didn't know it was wrong. Or I only did it to, you know, for this better reason, this good thing in the end. Or it wasn't a bad thing. You know, it was fine for me to do it. We've got a million excuses and ways to get ourselves off the hook. On the other hand, judging others for what they do comes easy to us. You know, that was so wrong of them. I mean, they must have meant it. And meant it really to annoy and to hurt and to wreck even. And it's typical of them, isn't it? They're so selfish. They knew exactly what they were doing. And it's because they are just really envious or stupid or weak or hateful. And really, they, they should be kicked out. They should be locked up or banned or shamed or shot. You know, we, we're very... rolls off the tongue. When we think about the ultimate judgment, the judgment of God, it's tempting to cheer on God judging others. Yeah, you know, that's what they deserve. And it's easier to imagine that God will excuse our faults. Because after all, our intentions were good. We did our best. We weren't as bad as some and better than plenty of others. God's a good sort. He'll go easy. These thoughts come naturally. In today's passage, Romans 2, 1-16 says loud and clear, that is not how God's judgment works. It says that God's judgment is based on deeds. What you do. Not what you meant to do. Not what you knew to do. Not which group you belong to. But what you have actually done. God's judgment is impartial. There's no special deals, there's no favourites. There is one rule. Repayment according to what you have done. So today, I want to look at this passage from Romans, which is printed in your booklet. I encourage you to have it open. And then I want to think about our hearts. The passage, first of all, has three basic things to say, I think. And the first one is this, that we all do the same things, which are wrong things. We all do the same wrong things. That no one can say those people are the sinners. 
but not me. Chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, if you were here last week, uh, you might remember that Paul has just finished saying, uh, or you might finish, remember what he has just finished saying, in speaking of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness and who worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, Paul said they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. And on he goes. And people hearing this for the first time in the city of Rome in the first century, as this was read out, this fresh letter from, from Paul, readers especially familiar with Jewish ways of talking might think that Paul here is giving a Jewish critique of idolatry, something such as we find in the Wisdom of Solomon, which is a first century Jewish work. Let me just read to you a little bit of it. For the worship of idols not to be named is the beginning and cause and end of every evil. For their worshippers either rave in exaltation or prophesy lies or live unrighteously or readily commit perjury. For because they trust in lifeless idols, they swear wicked oaths and expect to suffer no harm. But just penalties will overtake them on two counts. Because they thought wrongly about God in devoting themselves to idols... And because in deceit they swore unrighteously through contempt for holiness. For it is not the power of the things by which people swear, but the just penalty for those who sin that always pursues the transgression of the righteous. This is a Jewish critique of idolatry. And the wisdom of Solomon goes on to speak about how things are different with the Jews. Let me read on. But you, our God, are kind and true, patient and ruling all things in mercy. For even if we sin, we are yours, knowing your power. But we will not sin, because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. For to know you is complete righteousness, and to know your power is the root of immortality. For neither has the evil intent of human art misled us, nor the fruitless toil of painters, a figure stained with various colours, whose appearance arouses yearning in fools so that they desire the lifeless form of a dead image. Lovers of evil things and uh, lovers of evil things and fit for such objects of hope are those who either make desire or worship them. So the gist of that is, it's long and dense and unfamiliar perhaps, is that those who worship idols go wrong. But we Jews, we will not sin because you, God, acknowledge us as yours. Neither has the evil intent of the human heart, that is the art of idol making, misled us. It may have misled all those idolaters, but not us. 
Now, Paul goes in a very different direction to the way the wisdom of Solomon goes. Paul, instead of saying that his own people, the Jews, are kept from sin, unlike the idolaters, he says that we are all on the same level as the idolaters. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, maybe you don't bow down to and serve a carved and painted wooden figure, but do you love, serve and trust in wealth? Are you a greedy worshipper of mammon? Maybe you don't swear oaths by a lifeless block of stone, but do you keep your word? Are you always trustworthy? Are you always honest? Are you really free of envy, of strife and malice, of boasting? If we had a God's eye view of you, if you had a God's eye view of me, what would we find in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our secrets? Aren't we all subject to temptation? Don't we all have in us some susceptibility to pride, to anger, to lust, to mercilessness. And haven't we all fallen at one time or another? And couldn't we all fall again at any time? We all do the same things, wrong things. We all do them. That's the first thing the passage says. Secondly, God's judgment is based on deeds and privileges no one. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, says verse 2. God's information is good and his principles are sound. And the principles are there in verses 6 to 8. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But... For those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. The principle is not that God asks, what were your feelings? What were your hopes? What were your dreams? He asks, what have you done? Nor does God say in his judgment, now, how can we offset your bad doings with some of your good ones? What kind of discounts or rebates can we use to reduce the repayment you'll receive for your bad deeds? There are no offsets. There are no discounts. There are no rebates. There's just repayment for what you have done. All the wrath that all of your bad deeds deserve. There's no set of scales involved. It's not a, well, on balance, you know, you had some bad stuff, but there's the good stuff too, and oh, you know... You're okay. No, it's rather good for good and ill for ill. And no ethnic or religious group gets special treatment. Verses 9 to 11. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. 
Paul was writing to a mixed group of Christian believers. Some were Jewish, some were Gentile, non-Jews. And aware of the great store that Jewish people placed in having and knowing the law, the Torah, the, the covenant of Moses laid out in the books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. So um, <coughs> those books uh, containing this great moral and legal and priestly code and headed by the Ten Commandments, Paul is clear that having that law, hearing it taught, knowing its demands, does not turn your sin into righteousness if you are a Jew. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, says verse 12, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And not having the law, if you're a Gentile, does not mean you can plead ignorance. Indeed, verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them at other times even defending them. So there's the second principle. God's judgment is based on deeds and privileges no one. Thirdly then, this passage says we all need to take stock of this and repent. All the sins we see in others live in us as well. We don't all sin these sins in the same way or to the same degree, but we all have our share in the sin that we all share. Verses 2 to 5, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Jesus tells a parable I think would be good to remember here, Luke 18, 9 to 13. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which brings us then to our hearts. Our hearts must not be stubborn or unrepentant. God speaks a clear word in the Bible. None of us will pass muster at God's judgment on our own merits. The Pharisee is deluded in his complacency and self-righteousness. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. This is a delusion. 
The fact is we are all like other people, nursing and indulging our various sins, falling and failing to do what is worthy of eternal life. To be stubborn and to resist acknowledging this is to store up wrath against yourself. To those who judge and look down on others, God says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. On the other hand, the tax collector shows us what a repentant heart does. It acknowledges unworthiness. He stands at a distance. He will not even look up to heaven. He laments that unworthiness. He beats his breast, which is an expression of grief and of self-recrimination. He asks for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, this doesn't need to be taken to extremes. He doesn't have to prostrate himself repeatedly on the ground and lash himself with cords and cry out loudly over and over for mercy. It's not a performance to win God over. But this does need to be a real attitude of the heart, a real self-understanding that I am indeed a sinner and a real appeal for God's mercy. I really do want God to look with favour and gentleness and mercy upon me. It has to be a real absence of self-reliance or pride in ourselves. Our liturgy trains us to approach God humbly. You know, every week we come along and we sing, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. We're trying to confess our sins. But after we leave this building, we can put what we learn here into practice, perhaps in these two ways, that we do not look down upon others. We don't think of some other sinner. Well, what can you expect from that kind of person? Or we don't say, glad I've got nothing in common with them. Instead of looking down at people, instead we look across at others and say, they've got their sins, they've made their choices, but I've got my sins too. And we all of us need God's grace. Another way we might put it into practice is not idealising others. For the realisation that we are all sinners, that there's no kind of special class of righteous people who can't sin or don't sin, that means we won't fall into the trap of thinking that some people are too good to fall or to fail. For we are none of us beyond temptation and beyond coming, becoming corrupt. Now, there is more to say about God and sin and judgment, so keep coming along. Sunday by Sunday as we work through Romans, it's one connected series of thoughts and arguments and it's going somewhere, so keep coming. But for now, today, don't kid yourself about your merits in the sight of God's judgment and that they'll be good enough. This passage tells us loud and clear that we need to face the fact that we all do the things that will draw down God's disapproval, his wrath, his condemnation upon us. And so we need to repent and seek his mercy, which can I end by saying abounds. His mercy abounds. He is rich in it and ready to bestow it. Let's pray.
Father, give us eyes to see ourselves and especially to hear your word about how you see us, our hearts, that we do together all the same things, things which will not go well in your judgment. So help us to face this fact now about ourselves and to not to be stubborn and unrepentant, but rather to be humble, to receive this word, to know ourselves, to repent of our sins, to call to you for mercy. And we do praise you, Lord, that you tell us this in order that we might do that and find your mercy. We thank you that you are bound in it and are ready to give it. And that this whole letter is about understanding the way that you've done that for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.